That is important. Or you'll see the, uh, the uh, idea here. Um, first, let's deal with son, uh, firstborn, and only begotten. The, when, when we think about son, uh, we, the firstborn son, if we think about firstborn son, we're thinking, you know, there's a firstborn son, there's a secondborn son, there's a thirdborn son, etc. It's talking about chronological. When the Bible talks about Jesus Christ being the firstborn son, it's not talking about chronology, it's talking superiority. Okay, so when it talks that Israel was the firstborn nation, right? That doesn't mean that it was the only nation or that it was the firstborn nation, first nation, there was many nations afterwards. What it means is that Israel was God's chosen nation. It was, it was the preeminent nation. So it was the firstborn in preeminence. Uh, same thing with Jesus Christ. He is firstborn, meaning that he is preeminent. He's the first one raised from the dead, meaning he's the preeminent one that was raised from the dead. And so when you think about firstborn son, uh, you don't want to go the route of saying that, uh, that you know, he, was, he was the firstborn son of God and there were m- many more. Uh, he's the only son of God, and, uh, and we are children of God only by, by adoption. There's many, uh, there's many uh, religions that get that wrong uh, because they take that firstborn. Uh, take, for example, the Mormons. The Mormons believe <clears throat> that we were all eternal spirits, just like Jesus. And Jesus was the firstborn, meaning that he was born and his spirit took on human flesh. And then, through his lifetime, he became a god. Likewise, we were eternal spirits. We took on flesh. We are becoming like God. And one day, we're going to be a god. right? And so that philosophy in Mormons is the reason why they believe in polygamy. Multiple wives. Because they believe, they don't believe in any hell. They believe in three levels of heaven. You start at the bottom if you don't live a good life and you just work your way up to the celestial heaven. But we're all going to rule over our own planet, our own universe. Right? And so we've got to populate our universe. What's the best way to do that? Well, have multiple wives and you're going to populate your universe. And so they take that firstborn literally and think that we are many others that come after. And Jehovah's Witness and some other ones uh, do the same. But the firstborn is in preeminence. It's the same thing with only begotten. It's in preeminence. Now it talks about son, then it goes right to heirs. Right to heirs. Why does it talk about heirs first? And then it talks about creation. Well, it's talking about the son being the heir, being the inheritor, receiving the inheritance from the father, right? Then it goes to creation. He was the creator, right? So it's saying that the son inherits from God. And the reason why that's possible is because he is the creator, right? So we see that uh, here in uh, verse 2. He's a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he whom he created the world. So again, he owns everything. Therefore, he can inherit everything. And then, as a good firstborn son, he can then take care of all of the siblings by protecting and, and, uh, and providing for them. Okay, then it says, through whom all things, uh, through whom also he created the world. <clears throat> he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his, of his nature. Okay, so he is... Uh, Authoritative, uh, he is he is he is powerful. Uh, he is the 
He is the only one that has created the world. He is the only one that upholds the world by the word of his power. He is the only one that is the heir of God, right? So he's the son. He's the preeminent one. He is the supreme one, right? So he is the only one. Why is it that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved? Why? Because it's the only son. Why, why is he the only one that saves? Why? Because he created the universe. And he's the heir of the kingdom, right? No other, uh, no other um, person or no other God, because there is none, but there's no, they, no other, they can't claim that. They can claim it, but they're, but they're wrong, right? He's preeminent in this way. He's supreme uh, in this way, right? Not only is he the creator, and not only is he the sustainer, but he is the radiance of the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God. Now, when you think about glory, uh, glory is, is splendor. Glory is majesty. Glory is beauty. Glory is perfections. And so Jesus Christ radiates all of the glory, all of the perfection, all of the beauty, all of the splendor of the Father. Everything that is beautiful and splendid and majestic and wonderful about the Father is the exact thing that radiates from the Son. Right? He is a he is an exact imprint of who God is. Everything that you can say about the God, God the Father, you can say about the Son. Everything, right? Uh, take, for example, God is, God is one, okay? God is one, a uh, theological term that used that God is simplistic. Now, that doesn't seem right, you know, that we're complex, but God is simplistic. But the way that we want to understand when it talks about simplicity, God is one, uh, what it means to say that we're complex, meaning that we have parts. We have a lot of different parts. God doesn't have parts. He's, he's one. All right? So, so when you think about us, we have a respiratory system, we have a circulatory system. We have all these systems, and they're dependent upon one another. Right? <clears throat> and so uh, our heart depends on our lungs to give it oxygen. And if our heart stops functioning, then our lungs will stop functioning or our circulatory will stop functioning and we'll die, right? Because we're complex beings. God is simple. He's not parts. He is who he is. He's the great I am, right? So <clears throat> God is life, okay? Since God is life, he doesn't receive life from any other beings because he's God. He, he emanates life. He's, he's, he originates life. That's where life comes from. Why are you and I living? Because God is life. Why is God living? Not because somebody else's life is sustaining him and giving him life. He's, he's simple. He's one. He's life. That's who he is. That's, that's, life emanates from him. He doesn't receive life from anything else. He doesn't depend on anything within himself to continue to function so that he will continue to live. God is spirit. He doesn't have a heart, doesn't have a circulatory system. He doesn't depend on his heart to continue to beat so that he can live. You can't shoot him, kill him, choke him, or anything like that because he's life. He doesn't depend on anything to keep the life. So you can't stop his life because he is life. Right? He's simple. That's just simply who he is. That's, that's what he does. That's what he gives. You can't do any, <clears throat> anything about it. Right? So, <clears throat> so uh, again, you think about 
the Trinity, God being three in one, right? You would think, well, that's three different parts. Well, does, does the Father depend on the Son for life? And if the Son dies, does that mean that God stops living? No, he's all one. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. Even though it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three, three persons in uh, one God, they're all life. Jesus is the truth, the life. He is the way. Nobody can get to the Father except through the Son. The Son doesn't depend on the Father for life, and the Father doesn't depend on the Son for life because they're one, right? If Jesus died on the cross, that doesn't stop God from living because the Father never depended upon Jesus for his life because he is life. You see the difference? If, if Jesus depended on something else, or excuse me, if God depended on something else to give him life and he could die, then whatever he depended on, that is God. Right? But that's as far back as you can go to God, and there's nothing beyond God. He is life. He is the giver of life and the sustainer of life. Right? So, he is, so he's God. It's the very definition of who God is. So Jesus Christ is superior to the angels because he is the one that gives and sustains angels' life. He, he is superior to us is because our life is dependent upon him. If he stops giving us life, we won't, we won't continue to live. We're dependent. If he doesn't allow our parts to function together, we're dependent on our heart to continue to function. And the way that our heart continues to function is because God keeps giving us life. And when God doesn't give that heart life any longer, the rest of our body is dependent upon it. And so we die because we have heart failure. Because we're a complex, made up of many parts and dependent on each part to continue to live. God's not like that. He's superior to mankind. He's superior to angels. We depend on him for everything. And he depends on us for nothing. And so he's superior. He's the exact imprint uh, of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only has he created everything, not only does he, does he, does he, uh, is he sovereign over everything, but he's he also upholds everything. <coughs> upholds everything. Now, you know, the, the science uh, got to the, uh, created the atom bomb. And you know what the atom bomb does when it explodes? The atoms come apart. When the atoms come apart, it just makes an atomic bomb, right? Uh, now, what science has realized when they, when they view the, uh, the, the atom bomb or the atom through a, a microscope is that the atom bomb or the atoms don't have any membrane that holds them together. There's no reason for it to just separate and just the whole universe go up like a gigantic atom bomb. And, and they're pondering and wondering, what are, what's holding these atoms together? I'll tell you what's holding the atoms together. God is upholding these things together by the word of his power, right? He created the world into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. Right? So, so in, the, in the beginning, just to kind of give an example of where we are and why God is superior, because we're getting ready to go to the next one, uh, how, are, how is God preeminent? How is he superior? How does he uphold the world? Why do we need, need him to be the purifier of sins? <clears throat> well, in, in, in the beginning, he said, uh, let there be night and let there be day. How did, they, how did God create night and day? Huh? By the word of his power. 
But everything is, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So how is there night and day today? It's the rotation of the earth. So I think that God said, let there be night and day. And as soon as he said that, the world began to spin in circles. And he had night and day, night and day. Yes, there's a 24-hour clock, 24 hours a day. Now this was, most people say, anywhere from six to 10,000 years ago. And it doesn't matter. Because uh, the point that I'm making is, God said it. And it hasn't changed since. We can set our clocks to it. Every single day at 12 noon, the sun's straight up in the sky and we sit down and eat a picnic. Every single day. It doesn't move. You know, we just don't, we don't wake up at, at 12 noon and the sun's getting ready to go down. Right? Because it's set perfectly. It just spins the same speed all the time. Night and day. Okay? Then it says... Let's have days and weeks and months and seasons and times. How do we have days and months and seasons and times now? The earth, right, the earth is rotating or orbiting around the sun. Right? We can set our calendars to it. When's the first day of spring? March 21st. March 21st. Every year. And the weather begins to change. When's the first day of summer? 21st or 22nd? Do we, we, we ever expect snow when the summertime is coming? It's, it's hot every time. Every single time it's hot. It gets hot, miserably hot in Savannah. Right? Same. It keeps going same. So 10,000 years ago, God said, let there be seasons and days and weeks and times. It's been going the same speed since the very beginning. It hasn't stopped. Right? And then God created angels put Lucifer second in charge. He was the choir leader, the worshiper there in heaven, leaving the, leaving the, mercy of the, the worship music uh, to God in heaven. And somehow, don't ask, don't ask me how, somehow and for some reason it entered into his mind, I want to be sitting on that throne. I want the angels to be worshiping me. I want the world to worship me. I'm going I'm to take over his throne. He left with a third of the angels in heaven and now we have... Satan and demons. And God doesn't offer one single angel eternal life. No reconciliation, no restoration, no forgiveness of sins. The ones that left are demons and devils fit for hell. The ones that are left are still worshiping Jesus and will continue throughout all eternity. Then he decided to make man. Let's make man our image and likeness. He said, now if you eat from the tree of knowledge, you're going to die. And they ate. All right, now here's this world still obeying God, going around in circles, still obeying God, spinning on his axis, doing it perfectly, set the time to it every single, every single day, set your calendar to it every single year, still going perfect, hasn't changed anything. And then the psalm says, who are we that God is mindful of us? And the angels want to look into the mystery of salvation and applauds when every sinner repents. Huh? And then it goes on to say that he is the purifier. He's the one uh, 
He holds by the universe of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Making purification for sin. Now, what is the, what is the main problem in the universe? The main problem is that we've, that we've sinned, that, you, that, that, that people have sinned. That's the problem. And, and the cure is purification of those sins. Why is Jesus superior? Why is he the preeminent one? Why is, is he better than anybody in the universe, including angels? Well, one is because he offers salvation. But he, he, is the, he is the one who purifies the world of sin. The only one. See, there's the only son... And there's only one purifier of sin. And there's, and there's one who is superior to the angels because the name is greater. Because there's no angel that God ever said, this is my son. There's no greater name under heaven by which man can be saved. Then he's superior. He is preeminent. He is above all. <clears throat> right? So he... He sat down as the, as the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Because, again, God never said to any angel, any one angel, one specific angel, he never said, this is my son. All right? You think about the son. What is, <clears throat> what is it about the son that is so superior uh, is that uh, one is the inheritance, uh, but one of the one of the most um, what's the word I'm looking for one of the most praiseworthy things I guess that I'm trying to think. If you go to a young couple and uh, you look at their baby in the stroller, uh, one of one of the most praiseworthy things that you could say to that parent is, Ah, they look so much like you, right? Because what you're saying is, I can see your DNA in them. I can see your genes in them. I can see that that is your child. <clears throat> right? And Jesus Christ is the son, and he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the father. In other words, he looks just like his daddy. Right? And he never said that to an angel. And who else did he say that to you? He said that to us, right? Because we're joint heirs with Jesus. Because he is giving us his glory. What is his glory? All of his beauty, all of his perfection, all of his goodness, all of his glory, all of his splendor, all of his majesty. You want an interesting study? Lord, I've done 11 sermons in two weeks. I gotta think which one it is. Um, Thursday morning, the senior saints. I'm, uh, I'm preaching Hebrews chapter 2. And this is what it says. Verse 12. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now that's Jesus saying, 
I'm not ashamed of my siblings. I'm not, I'm, not a say, I'm not ashamed of my brothers and sisters. In fact, I will sing their praises in the midst of the congregation. So I'm answering basically the question, who will praise who's in heaven? Will God praise us or will we praise God? Yes, we will praise God, but he will also praise us. What do we, what do, we do when we sing to God? I will, glor- I will glorify, right? His name, we will glorify him. Well, what is God doing to us? He's blessing us. Those he justified, he will also glorify. glorify. Okay, instead of praise. Who's going to glorify who in, God, in heaven? Is God going to glorify us or are we going to glorify God? <laughs> Both ways. All right, you want, you want more of that? Come um, uh, Thursday morning. Which your appetite, huh? But yeah, it's a great book. So uh, that's, that's in, in, in part two. Um, okay, uh, 30 minutes. I went through that pretty quickly. Let me, um, let me share one thing with you, if I can find it here, that I uh, didn't know if I would get to. But uh, this is one of my favorite sermons. I think I can do this in 30 minutes. But it says that the sun sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The context is in Hebrews 1.3. If you look at verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and exact imprints of his nature, and he upheld the universe by the word of his power. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, And to which of the angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Okay? Uh, Jesus Christ's preeminence is finalized in the sitting down or the all things placed under the feet of Jesus. Sitting down is the idea of being finished and all things are under his feet is the idea of supreme authority. So today I want to paint a picture for you, or tonight I want to paint a picture for you. Uh, um, I want you to see God's complete plan from beginning to end. So we're going we're gonna to run quickly, uh, but we're gonna, I'm going to show you his complete plan. Let's go to Titus. And I am on Sermon 9, if you want to turn on that, if you have your thing, have your... Uh, Book. But Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, with God who never lies, promised before the ages began. Keep that in your mind. Before the ages began. We're going to get there. Now, three, there's three, threefold preaching ministry uh, of Titus. Uh, he preached for salvation, he preached for sanctification, and he preached for glorification. That's important. He, he preached for salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Okay, you can find that, you can see that in the, in the text. Uh, he, says, I, he said, I desire, in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I desire to preach to every man so that I may present every man perfect in Christ. All right, so he, he wasn't about the begin result. You know he was an evangelist. You know that he preached the gospel, but his goal was to be able to present people perfect in Christ. 
And so he discipled them. He didn't just preach the gospel, got them to say the sinner's prayer, and run back to the church and said, I had 52 people pray to receive Christ tonight, and I don't know where they are, and I don't keep in contact with them, and who knows what they're going to be five years from now. No, he didn't do that. What he did was is he preached the gospel, he got saved, then he, then he sanctified them with the word of God, continued to preach, continued to write letters, continued to went out and, and disciple them because one day he wanted to present them to Christ, <clears throat> present them to God uh, in, in perfection. <clears throat> he says, before time began in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, turn back to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy, we're at, we're at uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. This is a fairly new Bible, and it's hard to get these pages to come apart. All right, in verse 9, it says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinner. I don't think that's the one. What did I, what I do wrong here? Second Timothy. That's why I'm in First Timothy. Yeah, I'm in Second Timothy. First Timothy, rather. I need to be in Second Timothy. All right, Second Timothy, verse nine. It says, "Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, or before time began." That's very important, right? Because we want to ask. Who was God speaking to when he said before time began? All right, so the guarantee was that the Father says, I'm going to redeem sinners. The participants of the promise, the Father is going to redeem sinners for Jesus Christ's Son. God condescends to our level to communicate his plan, meaning that he spoke, Hebrews chapter 1, and he is letting us into his love relationship with his Son. We are watching God the Father loving the Son through the salvation process throughout the redemptive history. Salvation is about the love of God the Father, that the love of God, God the Father has for the Son, that the re redeemed humanity is rather insignificant or incidental, maybe be another word, maybe a better word, uh, other than we are given to the Son. Our, val our value is exponentially increased as the Father chooses us to be married to, this, to his Son. The focus of redemption is God's love for the Son and providing him a bride. Now, point five is Scooby. Understand? Scooby is a chihuahua. And uh, when I was in seminary, my children wanted a dog. And I said, well, we're in seminary houses. We can't have it. We moved to Savannah. I was in Victory Baptist Parsonage. They said, Dad, we're not in seminary anymore. Can we get a dog? I said, well, we're in the church Parsonage. Let's wait till we get our, uh, our house. Uh, when we got our first house, they still remembered they wanted a dog. And so I said, okay, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's go get a dog. And so I took Rebecca and we went to Keller Flea Market and we looked at the dogs there because uh, I, I, I didn't want a mangy dog, long-haired dog, something that's going to shed all over the place. I want a nice short-haired dog so we didn't have to deal with all the hair. 
Uh, and so we went, and Rebecca went over to like this $800 doll. Dad, I really like this one. I was like, oh, that's nice, but there's a $200 one over here. Let's go look at this one. This one's probably a little bit better. How about this one? And you know, of course, it was a puppy, so it didn't matter anyway. And so we got the doll. And uh, I took it home, and I said, uh, well, what's the name going to be? I don't know. And I said, i tell you what, we're not going to name it. We're just going to wait and see which one sticks. And so everybody was calling the dogs all kinds of different things. And then finally, they just came down. Scooby was the one, right? Scooby, the Chihuahua, was our dog for 16, 16 years. Just died maybe about two or three years ago. Uh, but the dog was loved by my children. Now, my kids love dogs, all dogs. They have books about dogs. They love watch movies about dogs. I mean, they love dogs. But they love Scooby. You know why they love Scooby? Because it was a gift from their daddy. Huh? Probably because Scooby loved them. Yeah, a gift from their daddy. Now listen, God loves the world. <laughs> he loves all people. But he really loves Christians. You know why? Because you're a gift from his daddy. Let's turn over to John's Gospel. John chapter 6. And what we're going to do, remember, you're a gift. You're a gift to Jesus, redemptive history. God promised Jesus to have redeemed humanity that would worship him. And he's, and he's gifting to, to Jesus Christ, okay? John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives, right? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Right? My children, they saw a lot of dead dogs on the road, and they'd pass by in the car, and they'd go, ooh, and... Two seconds down the road, they forget about it and move on. When Scooby died, I don't think they're over it yet. They cried the day he died. They, we still talk about him and think about him from time to time. Every time a, a, a picture pops up on my memory on Facebook, I'll share it. Oh, we miss Scooby. Right? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know why you have assurance of salvation? Because you're daddy's love gift to his son and the son will never get rid of a love gift that his daddy has given him right that's where our security assurance of salvation comes from yes yes Verse 44, no one can can come to me unless the the, uh, Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, right? The assurance of our salvation. I will raise him up on the last day. Why? 
because he is a love gift from my daddy, and I will raise him up. I will bring him with me. All right, verse uh, 64 and 65. Should have brought my glasses or turned the lights on brighter. brighter. 64 says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Again, granted or given. Unless you are given to me by the Father. So God is choosing love gifts to give to his son. And if you're not a love gift, you won't be given or you won't be granted. You have to be a love gift from the son. God in redemptive history has given Jesus a bride, a redeemed humanity. He is choosing and he is gifting. In other words, uh, people used to ask me when I went to India, what is, what is more biblical uh, marriage? Is it the way that we do it, where it's an arranged wedding, or is it at uh, America where everybody just runs out and chooses their own wife? Well, it's more biblical when it's an arranged wedding because the father has arranged the bride for the son is giving the groom the, the, the bride. And so it's, it's prearranged. All right, notice that our eternal security is based on God giving uh, the value of the redeemed is because the redeemed are a gift from God to the Father, to God the Son. Now let's turn to John chapter 17. Again, we'll, uh, we'll see the same idea here. John chapter 17, we'll look at verse 9 first. Go down to verse 9. It says... I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All right, so now remember, this is the high priestly prayer before they go to the cross. It's important to remember. And he said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for all of those who will be given to me by my Father. And then go down to verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay, uh, getting ready to go to the cross, right? I'm getting ready to go to the cross. I'm getting ready to die. When I'm on the cross, I can't protect them. them. I can't protect my bride. So will you protect them while I go to the cross? Because you're the one that gave them to me. You gave them to me, but I'm going to the cross. Now you protect them. Why does he need protected? Because I'm going to be on the cross. And I'm, and I'm going to be put to death by Satan and the Israelites and the Romans. And I, need you to per, and I need you to protect them, right? So he's not going to leave them unprotected, right? So you arranged or I arranged the wedding for my daughter or for my son, I should say. And uh, they're married. And then he has to go off to war. So my son comes to me and says, Dad, you chose my wife for me, but I have to go off to war. And I don't want to leave her by herself, unprovided for and unprotected. And so will you watch over her until I return? And of course, the daddy that I am would say, of course, son. You go win the war and I'll take care of her until you return. And that's what... The Father, or what Jesus is doing, what the Father is doing here. So God is pursuing, drawing, granting, and giving. Those whom God gives shall come, right? There's a little bit of irresistible grace. They will come. 
Uh, America selects their wives and votes for their presidents, but not in other countries and not in the Bible. Jesus guarded and protected and loved, but is now leaving. We see that in 17, verse 12. Jesus lives, uh, uh, leaves, ascends to God the Father, sends the Holy Spirit to lead, protect, and seal. The Holy Spirit is like the wedding ring. It's the promise. It's the guarantee, right, that you'll be protected, that you'll be sealed, that you're in a marriage covenant, that you won't be left behind. It marks the to be married. Jesus then expresses his desire that uh, that one that uh, uh, desire to one bring the bride to him to be together forever, and that's in seventeen. 24 it says father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world right and uh and so the and so the picture is the picture is the jewish wedding if you know the jewish jewish wedding uh, it has a little bit of the lord's supper in it too um but in a, in a Jewish wedding, the, uh, the um, marriages range, the betrothal uh, period occurs, uh, they're getting ready to have the wedding feast, uh, they bring it together, and when they bring it together, they have a meal, they take a glass of wine, and they sit it in front of the bride. And they're partying, having a good time, they're celebrating this period of time, waiting for the bride to take the cup and drink it. To, to confirm that the, that the wedding is to move forward. All right? And so the wedding moves forward. Um, once they determine that the wedding is going to take place, the man goes back to his father's house and he gets ready to build a home for the new bride to live in uh, to get ready to be able to provide for her and care for her and take care uh, uh, and while he's away building the bride is readying himself and when the groom is finished with building his home for provisions and his dad is overseeing the project to make sure that the son is building it correctly so he has everything that he needs to be able to provide for his wife he then goes returns gets the bride and brings them back, they get married, and they live together forever. And that imagery is in the Bible because it says that Jesus Christ is leaving to prepare a place for us. And when he is done preparing that place, he will back, come back to receive us unto himself. Okay, so that whole wedding imagery is, uh, is, is there throughout the, the Bible. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20, 29 it says that we have been saved to be conformed into his image and likeness. Again, the greatest flattery, that's the word I was trying to look at earlier. The greatest flat, flattery or the greatest compliments you can give a parent is your child looks just like you. There's part of you in the child, your genes and DNA are in the child, and, and, and we see your image in them. The greatest compliment to Christ in us uh, uh, well, is us in his image. We bring him glory and we honor him and his name by loving and being like him. By becoming glorious just like him. Okay, and then the consummation or completion or the fulfillment there is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
And we'll look at verses 20 to 28. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep. For as by a man, uh, just, just as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... Right? Those who belong to Christ, those who have been given to Christ by God, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy is death. For God has put all things and subjected under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under his feet. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under subjection under him that God may be all and all. And so the picture is, here's the picture. i got five minutes to do it. Five minutes before time began, before there ever was a creation, God had a plan. God went to his Son, he says, I am going to create the universe and I'm going to put man and I'm going to make him into our image and into our likeness. But they're going to sin and I'm going to send you to redeem them. And when you redeem them, I'm going to give you those who will be redeemed as your bride. Right? And they are going to be made into your image and into your likeness. I'm going to fill them with your glory. They're going to look down. The people are going to look at them and go, wow, you look so much like Jesus. Look, you look so much like Jesus. And that's going to continue, right, until we're, until we're glorified. And Jesus Christ is preparing a place for us. Right? And when he's done, he's going to come back and receive him to himself, and then we're going to be married in perfection. Right? In perfection. In, in our glorious bodies. Where we'll be made into his image and into his likeness. See? Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth the way that the waters covers the sea. How does the water cover the sea? The water is the sea and the sea is the water. You could say, God desires that the glory of the Lord will cover the world like water covers water. It's all the same thing, right? There's a day coming when there's going to be a massive flood of the glory of God like Noah's Ark, where there's going to be nothing but the glory of God like the flood waters of Noah that's going to fill the earth. What is the glory of God? All of his perfections, all of his beauties, all of his glory, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness. And what's going to be included in this is the glory of the bride of Christ, you and me. You and me. So how is Christ preeminent to the angels or preeminent above all things? He is the Son of God. And the Son of God is having an arranged marriage 
with the bride of Christ, the church, and we are being married to him, and then we're going to receive all of his glory, all of his perfections. And see, when you're in heaven, when you think about the love relationship, and that's what we've been talking about, the inner Trinitarian love relationship of God. We're seeing God love the Son by giving him a redeeming humanity. And then we just read in 1 Corinthians, after all things are subjected to our feet, he's going to give himself and his bride back to the one who has subjected all things to him, right? The reciprocal love God gave to his Son, then the Son gives back to God, right? Reciprocating his love, right? And, and we're just kind of caught up in it all. We're just, been, we're just benefactors of it all. God just gives us his glory, right? I mean, it's just like when you think about uh, awards. God has given us everything. everything. Everything that we have is his. And he says, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and dust can have thieves cannot break in and steal. And then we say, well, I don't know if I want to give anything and lay it up for heaven. Listen, this is what it is. God gives you everything. And whatever, he, whatever you give back to him in sacrifice, he multiplies in heaven exponentially. So he's given you everything, and everything you sacrifice becomes a treasure in heaven. Because that's the kind of God that God is. He's redeeming us. He is glorifying us because we are love gifts from his father to his son. Prearranged marriage. Jesus Christ died for an ugly bride to make it glorious. Right? It's going to be a glorious bride in heaven. You won't believe what you look like in heaven. You will not believe what you look like in heaven. You are going to be filled with the glory of God. Right? And, the, and how much do you glorify God now? And how much do you think God will glorify you once he puts his glory in you? Because that's what Jesus Christ is doing now. He's loving the Father and loving the Son over their perfections and their glory and their majesty and their splendor. And then all of a sudden we come and we're part of it. And we get to celebrate in the love and the glory of God. Absolutely amazing. He is superior because he is the purifier of our sins. Let's pray. Father God, we love you for Hebrews. Don't know the author, but Lord, it's inspired. And thank God is here. What a wonderful book. What an incredible book. It's all about Jesus cover to cover. About his superiority and his preeminence and his greatness and his glory and his splendor and his majesty. Father, it's just been rich, rich to study, Lord. And we thank you for, for including it in the word. And we just ask, Father, that you would do exactly what we've learned today. That you would give us to Christ, gift us to him. Fill us with your glory. Sanctify us and set us apart for your uh, purpose. Though we are ugly now, we know we will be glorious in heaven, Father. Because that's your intent, to make us a beautiful bride for Christ. Lord, you are superior to all, above all things. And you're sitting at the right hand of God, majesty on high, waiting for us, preparing for us a home, making us into the image and likeness of Christ to receive all of your glory and all of your honor. And we will spend eternity praising each other. And Father, we love you and thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.